0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the first episode of Inside the GM Studio. This is Matt, just coming in a little early to let you guys know that this was our first episode, technically the second one we ever recorded. So please give us some time. Uh, I'm working on the audio quality. And if you guys have any questions to give us, uh, go ahead and send it to inside the GM Studio at gmail.com. We're always looking to build the community, look forward to possibly a Discord, maybe something... But yeah, let us know what's up. Send us some questions. Send us what you think. Uh, Thank you again for giving it a listen, and please just give me a little while. The audio quality will get better. Oh, welcome to Inside the Game Master Studio or Inside the GM Studio. We're still trying to figure that one out. I am the host, Matt.
1: And I'm David.
0: And on today's show, what we got, uh, we got what we've been playing. Hopefully, uh, Beto's been doing pretty good with your game. Uh, one of mine, my, my Deadlands game, we had to miss last week because one of my players has a new job where he flies a lot. So I don't know if we're going be, to be playing that much. We also uh, got, uh, if we get a chance to get to it, our world building section. There is some news that I want to bring up today because it's something that Dave and I have talked about a couple times um we got our community questions and we got the main topic and that's just it. the main topic is going to take up a lot of time because it's one of my absolute favorites and it gets deep so first of all let's go ahead did you guys play on saturday
1: we did we played last night uh session went pretty well again veto is new dm he was like, "Well, probably." We- I thought it was going to be a one shot, but we'll probably we'll probably get to it next week. And I was like, "Dude, whatever you think is going to be a one shot is going to be like three or four sessions." So, it was pretty cool. Um, we didn't push the plot of the game too far forward, but you know, like I told him, I was like, you know, not pushing the plot of the game forward is okay if you're allowing your characters to reveal some stuff about their characters that, like, you know, an action-packed session is fine, but, like, in the slower moments of the game, this is a big tip that I have for... Fuck you, buddy!
2: Um, <laughs> sorry.
1: Uh, this is a tip that I have for uh, for new GMs. Is like, if you're not going to have a session that has, you know, plot point, plot point, plot point, and you're going to kind of let it be a little bit more loose and kind of, for lack of a better word, free-range PCs then I think that that's fine as long as your players are taking that opportunity to reveal some things to the other players and to the DM about what their character is like, uh, because that informs all moments of heavy gravity down the line. Uh, so we had some of that. I was trying to kind of take the lead there on that front. And uh, it was kind of a funny story. I'll just give you this quick anecdote really quick. Cause I was, I told Beto the thing that I just told you, which is, you know, I'm trying to give him tips to like be better about DMing because he he's a lot like me when he's describing stuff. He can be a little long winded, right? Which I know I can because I like flavor and texture and description. But uh, you have to kind of balance economy versus texture, right? You want to give the players a sense of the world, but you don't want to build a fucking diorama on their head of like every single nook and cre- like crevice of the world right you just got to give them a sense of it um but so we kind of pushed the adventure forward it was like we had an encounter and during that encounter um my character is kind of like a battlefield commander type and so we were leaving to kind of pursue this guy who would kidnap this girl to kind of turn her over to the cult i think i might have mentioned this to you and so we're leaving town, and there's these guards that have been paid off by the cult to, like, follow us. They've been paid off to, like, allow access of a girl out of the city and all this. And so my guy doesn't look too favorably upon this. I'm lawful good. I think that these characters, uh, these guards, have been tasked with protecting the people. And, and now they're, like, actively fostering. Not only are they derelict in their duty, but they're actively fostering the cultivation of this cult and the kidnapping of this young girl. And they're just like the worst kind of people in my character's eyes. And so I try to tell them to halt and to turn back. Right. I get two charisma checks, intimidation checks, and I get like a 19 and like a 21 and they're just not being deterred. And I'm like, you still have an opportunity to leave here with your lives and turn back. And you know, I'm a lawful character. I will honor this agreement that we have basically. They push forward. They say nah, whatever. Like the cult will do worse things to us. And I was like, all right, if you think that's true, then, you know, and we fight them, you know. And I'm like, leave one of them alive. I want to question him. It's a very similar situation with like Kane. Like these people have earned my scorn, and so like I just am not nice to the remaining guy, right? Like, <laughs> just not very good to him, right? Give him a glassgow smile, smash his hand in with a fucking fight and interrogate him give him the old american history x curb stomp to the boot right one of the other characters is like i don't know if i approve of your methods and i kind of like try to explain to him why i do things the way i do i chop off all their heads i put them on this post and let everybody know that this is like what happens to people that follow the cult this is probably in line with what you perceive characters that i've played to be like i'm kind of that way Mm -hmm. And uh, I was talking to Beto, and it's kind of a funny story because uh, Chris Davis, my other player, he plays a gnome wizard. I'm telling Beto, like, hey, you know, it's fine if the plot doesn't get pushed together as long as you, the characters are taking these small moments to kind of, like, reveal things to the other characters and to the DM about you know what their character is about and chris is just like oh yeah i definitely know some more stuff about your guy now (laughs) i learned some things about your dude i was like okay so uh so that was pretty good he's he's doing well i think he needs to kind of dial back um how verbose he is and kind of he also kind of forgets that it's kind of a mystery and he's revealing these clues to us, but he's not seeing it through our lens. Right. And so we're kind of running it and he's like, ah, oh, well, you know, okay. Like I didn't really delineate that that well. And so, um, but generally speaking, he's, he's doing pretty good. I think he's now that we're getting into the, meat of the adventure, he's getting a little more ner- nervous and kind of, uh, I don't know, but, um, but yeah, we're pretty solid. We're taking a week off next week. Uh, and then he'll probably finish up his adventure and then I'll switch over to being DM going pretty well. I think that uh, certainly was better. He's probably his first, second session where I was at after three or four years of DMing, but then again, I was only like, you know, 14 or 15 when that was the case. Yeah. So uh, maturity counts for a lot there. But So you missed your game this week? You didn't play anything this week?
0: No, we played uh, our Savage Pathfinder on Monday, mm-hmm. which was another fucking banger. Uh, we had our first um, dramatic task which was awesome. Uh, I was really looking forward to running that with those guys. Cause Rob has always asked me before, he's just like, whatever happened to like doing skill challenges from like fourth edition and all that? And I was like, oh, dude, don't you worry. I got something coming up. And sure enough, <clears throat> he took to it really good. Cause the, the first couple, it was, uh, they each needed four successes in four rounds. Uh, otherwise they'd all suffer a uh, a point of fatigue which you know in Savage Worlds could really fuck you up
1: oh yeah it
0: Um, and uh, so the first two rounds I did it myself where I told them the situations coming in and uh, at first they were kind of like well oh, what should I use and I was like whatever you think is necessary just don't double up you can't double up on abilities so they each got into it like right off the bat even Jason who usually kind of cuts corners This time, he kind of really got into it and got to come out and just role play and throw in a bunch of flavor text into it. And it was fucking dope. It was just them going through these woods, which are supposed to be treacherous and full of traps and goblins and just all sorts of other bad shit. And uh, yeah, they they went through it really well. We had a ton of fun with just that. I would have been happy if the whole session was just that. But they're getting pretty close to the end of the first chapter here. I think there's 9 chapters in total for this campaign and they're coming close to the first one being over. Um but now we just got to Thistletop, which is like this old keep that was put together from uh, pieces of ships, uh shipwrecks uh that these goblins have put together and th- through it I there was all these hints that I left for this monster that they had caged away, this horrible beast that they trapped and hid away. And there's all this shit as you come through, like there's this uh, door that they came to that was board sh- boarded shut. And in there, you know, on there is, uh, God, I can't remember what the clue was, but it said something f- about the monster in there. And when they went in, it was a bunch of pickles and all this other food stuffs. But a ton of, p- of pickles and one of the thing was is the pickles all the bites that have been taken out of pickles were these super lo- really big flat teeth and i brought them out you know this just these gnarly massive teeth uh taking these bite marks out and then they get into this room with this gigantic uh this area where all these goblins just a horde of goblins it was like 12 goblins or something as they're going through just slaughtering these things they're starting to look through And in the middle of the battle, I start telling them about there's this other room. It's like a little shed off to the side. It sounds like this thing's about to just come down is something very large is just banging on these, on these walls and on the door that is not only locked. It is also boarded up and then boarded up over those boards. And it's just scrawled over the front of it, the monster, And uh, when they got close enough to be able to check it out, I was telling them that down on the ground before the door, there's two goblin bodies that have just been uh, completely crushed by some giant bludgeoning instrument. And they, uh, for like a good, geez, it was like 10, 15 minutes. They're just talking about, God, what should we do? What are we going to do? Should we open it? What are we going to do? We should probably just take care of this thing right now. And Rob, I love his thing. He was just like... I'm gonna go get some pickles. So he runs over and he grabs a bunch of pickles. He's like, at least maybe this thing will go for the pickles before us, because I think it's an herbivore, it's got flat teeth. So he throws all these pickles onto the ground and uh, Jason's barbarian goes up, grabs out his crowbar and he starts prying these boards off. And then out comes this gigantic black Clydesdale that just immediately goes to to the pickles and starts eating the pickles. And it was, it was just a horse that they found that they stole from, a uh, uh, these traveling merchants and they were going to try to, uh, either cook it or try to use it for themselves. But the horse just ended up killing all the goblins the entire time. And, uh, they decided to stow it away for a while. And that's where we ended that one. But that was another good one where they were all just like, Jesus Christ, what do we do? Oh my God, what the fuck are we going to do? Yeah. I was like yeah, it was just a horse.
1: Yeah, it's that almost sounds like something that you might be. It's fun to have little cheeky things like that every now and again. You know, if you get too many of them, it kind of starts to feel like a hackmaster campaign or something mm-hmm. like that. But,
2: yeah.
1: uh, but it is fun to have little cheeky like like that game that uh, you were running and we came in. And it was like all these goblins or whatever. And it was like, and you see like a tabletop, you know, and there was like a grid on the tabletop and little mm. polyhedral pieces of stone. And mi- and I was like, oh, they're playing D&D. <laughs> <And> they're like, <laughs> like, that's pretty cool. Right? Um, yeah. I kind of wanted to ask you about this too, because I've been unable to find, um, speaking of dramatic tasks, I ran one for Savage Worlds when I did the uh, sword and sorcery adventure. Mm. I ran a sword and sorcery adventure for um, my group. And I thought it went over well. I thought it was pretty cool, but, like, it seemed like the players kind of... Two of the players, one of them was kind of agnostic. Eh, whatever. One of them was like, I prefer D&D to Savage Worlds. And the other one was like, I'm down for whatever, right? And uh, so to me, that kind of all communicates, like, well, we should just play D&D then. But I I ran a Sword and Sorcery Savage Worlds adventure. And I used the dramatic task more in line with the skill challenge. I didn't follow the book exactly, precisely. Um, but, you know, with the sword and sorcery campaign, I kind of like the idea of almost having it play out cinematically, mm-hmm. right? Where you have, like a like, a dramatic task or a skill challenge or whatever you want to call it, kind of, you know, almost like a montage of things that happen. And then when you get to the location or whatever, like, then you kind of slow down into real time and the camera kind of fixates on our heroes uh, but there was another mechanic that i picked up that i have been unable to find for um i think it was the conan rpg and it's called uh, cinematic combat and so the notion is is that like in sword and sorcery stories a lot of the times there is in some sort of impediment uh, maybe the characters come into a temple and, oh, uh, think of in uh, Conan the Destroyer. They come into the temple and there's those those big group of guys, right? And you know that these are all like minions. And so the, the characters' success is inevitable. It's not like a boss fight or even like a moderately challenging encounter. These are just a horde of low-level cultists, guards, whatever. Your characters are maybe like mid-tier, right? They're the equivalent of D&D of like 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th level, right? Mm -hmm. Somewhere in there, or maybe even higher level. But somewhere between like 6th level and up, where they can handle like a... You know, it's not a matter of the formidability of the enemies, but the quantity, right? Like a hundred skeletons, an army of skeletons. And... The success of your players is inevitable. And so they had this mechanic that was like broke down cinematic combat. Okay, how badly is your party outnumbered? Two to one, three to one, four to one, five to one. And then you do a roll, like a couple of rolls. Each player in the group does a roll. And then that governs how much damage each player takes from this encounter because it's a foregone conclusion that they're going to come out victorious, mm-hmm. but it's just like how badly banged up and bruised up do they get from like killing this horde of enemies? And you just kind of do that over the course of a couple of rolls, almost like a skill challenge, and then you cut scene to a more dramatic thing. I like this concept, but I have been unable to find the actual mechanic for it. I was curious as to what you thought about it or if you've ever ran anything like that.
0: Uh, I have. I'm trying to remember what it was. It might have been. Oh, God, what was it? It might have been Shadowrun uh, 6th edition. They have a rule in there for. uh, Yeah, they have a rule in there for uh, big mob battles. And so uh, depending on how many. uh, Enemies you're facing off against it. They add that on to a base damage pretty much. So that's just it. Yeah, as you go, because that's just it. And as we'll talk about later in cyberpunk games, things are supposed to be flashy and you're supposed to, you know, the better you look doing it, the better you'll succeed. And that's just it. They don't really want to care about damage every single time rolling up the damage and all this. So they just have a base that you're going to take. If it's successful, it's going to happen. That's the closest I could I can think of that sounds like that
1: i don't know like what are, what are your thoughts on i like that it. kind of mechanic
0: i like that just because it makes it easier for us as game masters as well if we just know the number that's going to happen it's like um remember in fourth edition when they had the average damage for all the attacks and shit
1: they still do that actually i was going to ask you about that because like what, what are your thoughts about applying average damage? I think it can be good in some in like a, some scenarios, mm. but general as a general rule, I think it takes a little bit of flavor out of the
0: game. When I'm playing live, I like it because sometimes I'll be have so much other stuff to do. I can just look and be like, oh, eight damage. You're gonna take eight damage. Uh, if I roll something a little bit better, I might add one, but it's just nice to not have to roll it and then do all the math in your head.
1: Sure, but don't you uh, don't you agree that like I don't know about you, but I like to maybe because I'm more of a fan of the sword and sorcery genre. I like I like a battle or a game in general to be more like jazz, right? Like
2: mm-hmm.
1: like that improvisation, right? I don't like it to be like overly structured, or it kind of begins to feel like Warhammer or some sort of strategy game like Risk. So if a player knows a power gamer will will. Take the fact that you're going to do average damage. Okay, uh, so do I need to use healing this round? Okay, if I get hit by this enemy, I know he's applying average damage, so I'll only take six damage where I have eight hit points left. So I should hold off on healing until like the next time around. And it's like it just kind of takes a lot of that like free flowing improvisation out of the game, and I feel like that kind of crushes the creativity of the game.
0: It does. I have to agree. Uh, Yeah, because then they do they start talking about mitigation and all this other shit with their defenses. So yeah, it is. And plus it is, it's nice when you roll and they're, you know, they're getting down to their last leg, you know, they're there and you roll the damage after another hit and they're just waiting for it. You're like ah, two damage.
1: Yeah. That anticipation is because you like to think that by speeding up the game, average damage does speed up the game. Mm-hmm. And you like to think that that speeds up the game and it makes it more cinematic. But from my experience, the few times I've tried it, it's the opposite is it gives players more information and they're more strategizing, like, like a risk type scenario, as opposed to just kind of, you know, in, in the sword and sorcery genre is I'm a big fan of that fantasy genre. And it's like bam, 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 like, mm-hmm. do, 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 do act, 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 you know, fortune favors the bold and like do, doing something with style is better than doing something that's effective. And so you try to reward the players that do things with style and make those things effective it was it's kind of funny actually toward that end um i don't know maybe this is not the right section of the podcast to talk about this but i actually kind of came around on a couple of changes to the rules in the game when i gm which is uh i think i'm going to do away with the whole you probably already play this way because you're a little bit less rigid of a dm than i am but um i think i'm going to do away with the whole like you can only interact with you, like you can't dr- you, like you can draw one weapon and then if you want to use the object again then it's like you know mm-hmm. it's an action i was like i don't see a problem with like you know you have a bow in your hand you fire an arrow you put it away you draw your sword yeah i don't have a problem with that i think that's being overly rigid um i'm kind of a purist i usually err on the side of red as written um and then uh same thing with uh i think i'm gonna get rid of heat Taking a healing potion takes an action. I see no reason why that should be the case, because in the use object interact with environment situation, it says you can quaff a flagon of ale as an action as a use object. Mm-hmm. So that just raises the question of like, well, if I can drink an entire ale, why can't I
0: take a little potion? A po-
1: yeah, it's like it just, and that that's a good point. I was like, you know, that doesn't make any sense because it seems like the intent of the rule D and D does this. It, it focuses on effect instead of the actual mechanics of the action. So the, the example that I used when I was discussing it through with one of my players was let's say, you know, the use object action can be used to flip a lever. Okay. Now, generally speaking, if you're reading an adventure or something to the effect, flipping a lever is flipping a lever. It doesn't matter if that lever unlocks a door or it drops a bunch of rocks on the enemy that cause 10d10 damage. But like generally speaking, when you read an adventure that's published or anything in the rules, it's like, oh, it does a bunch of damage, so flipping that lever is an action. And Mm -hmm. that seems kind of like horseshit to me because it's like you're focusing on the result, which doesn't make any difference, right? Like, I get it if it's like a player needs to make an attack on something to, like, shoot... Uh, This happened in my Savage Worlds sword and sorcery campaign where it was like the players came to this outpost and there was a bunch of guards there and they were not going to let them pass. And it was like an outpost and it was they had like all these barrels stacked up in one corner of the room and they were all bound up with a barrel or with um, with a rope. And one of my players was an archer. All of the guys were kind of like congregating into one area of the room. And he was like, hey, so all those barrels, like, are they just held by a rope? And I'm like, yeah, they're just bound up by the rope and they're all stacked up. And he's like, what would happen if I managed to hit that rope and sever the rope? I'm like, all the barrels would come tumbling down. And he's like, and would they like basically, would that footprint be in the footprint of all where all the bad guys are? And I'm like, yeah, predominantly. Um, you might hit one of your allies. But he was like, you know what? Like, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like I could wipe out a lot of that. And I'm like, fucking hey, dude, do it. Right? Like, that's awesome. Like, that's cool. And I don't want to be like, well, technically, you know, it's like, Technically, you know, like it's, it would be, you know, it's like doing it. I was like, no, nah, it's like that's a cool thing. And I get that you don't want to, like, if you set a precedent, if you make a ruling on something, it enshrines it kind of as a precedent, almost like the law, right? A, a legal precedent has been set. So you have to be careful with that. But there's no reason to have it work the other way where the rules are like hindering you from doing things that are creative and fun. So.
0: Yeah, I think I told you about the time when we were doing the uh, the 50 Fathoms game and we did a chase uh, that I actually turned, instead of doing the regular chase rules, I turned it into a dramatic task and that was one thing one of my players just...
1: Chase, chase rules are kind of dumb. They are. Rules. I don't like them.
0: The suede, but anyway. I'll tell you what, the suede rules for chase is way better than it used to be but yeah, they're still pretty fucking dumb. Anyway, I'm not a fan. Oh no, that's fine because I agree with you. But uh, he, was, he was just like, if I spend a Benny, can I say that there's, like, some lumber or, like you said, some barrels up here that I could just knock over and block their path? I was like, dude, that's fucking awesome. You don't even need to spend a Benny for that. Just what would you want to roll for? And he's like, oh, no, athletics, would that work? I was like, yeah, that works just fine. And I actually gave him a Benny because I was like, that was a great idea.
1: Yeah. That was one thing that I liked in uh, the Conan RPG as much as it's... Um kind of rules-heavy, like power-gamer mechanic. I don't know if you remember this, but it has this concept called fate points. Mm -hmm. And So basically, your character delineates a few scenarios that would happen throughout the course of the adventure, and if one of those things happens, then they get a fate point that they can use to do maximum damage, to change the environment, to change the world in some way, like, oh, I'm locked in this prison, and as it turns out, like I find, like, a shard of metal or something that might help me pick a lock. Mm -hmm. Not something that's like, I found the key, but like, you know, I found something that might give me an opportunity. The guard falls asleep or something. Um, And so it was kind of a way for the players to subtextually communicate to the GM, these are the sort of conflicts that I would like to see for my character in the game. And you can kind of play into that. It was kind of like in 4th edition, I, I don't know if you ever did this, but I used to have um back when magic items were a little more prevalent and it was kind of an expectation that each player would get kind of like every other adventure probably get one magic item, you know, of eight different slots per mm-hmm. level or two. So they just I just have them give me a wish list of things that I thought that they might like.
0: I did the same thing.
1: Yeah, it's like, what do you want? You know, and maybe I'll pick from that and maybe I'll give you something different. But um and I think that that's probably not the way to go nowadays. I, I kind of like the, the guesswork of it all. And sometimes you get something that isn't, you know, you don't have a wizard in the party, but you got a wand. Like, well, what am I going to do with that? Or, mm-hmm. like, I don't know. But um, so I like, but you know, I used to do that. And so I like the players to kind of communicate what their expectations are and what it is that they kind of want to see. And you can structure your adventure around that. And it's a way to keep the players a little more engaged.
0: Yeah, that's something that I want to bring up and another episode coming up is uh, added player power, I guess we could call it, like the fate points, bennies, luck, all that sort of thing. But I think we should get to, uh, before the news, I'd like to do the community question.
1: Sure, yeah, let's do it. Am I so, rolling?
0: Yep. So yeah, if you got your D20, go ahead and give that boy a roll
1: at d20.net <laughs> All right, let's see. Go. Uh, what do we got? 17.
0: 17. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm, 17. Who is a uh,
1: long? How many titties are like enough titties? Yeah. Oh, this is
0: a this is a long one. Oh. Oh, this is a good one for today. Oh, sweet. Okay. All right, so this is this is one of the better ones that I thought was asked. Uh, so this one uh, comes from, hey, the guy I was telling you about last week, Richard C, uh, who asked a bunch of questions. But uh, yeah. so as a player, how can I avoid stifling new players, but also avoid letting this stall? I have just started a cyberpunk campaign. Two of us are experienced RPGers. One hasn't played in about 10 years, and the other two are complete newbies. The GM is not new to RPGs, but is new to Cyberpunk, and this is his first time as GM. Both myself and the Laps player have Cyberpunk experience. Everyone else is brand new. My character is a solo, aka like, a, a fighter. Yeah. The only one in the group. My backstory is that I have no personal memories from beyond six months ago, but I do remember a lot of stuff how to shoot and fight, history of the world, some local knowledge, etc. The other experienced player is a netrunner, hacker whose personality is that of a weak, sniveling coward who tries to stay out of the way as much as possible if he isn't hacking. We have run two sessions, and I'm finding that I'm naturally leading the group, partially because this first mission came from an NPC fixer to me, and the other players happened to be around and also looking for work, allowing me to put a crew together. I am trying my hardest not to direct the new player characters too much and give them a sense of agency to make their own choices to the point of telling the crew in game that I am not a leader. I shoot and I kill. But I have so far found myself being put in a position to lead every scene and conversation by the other players. The other experienced role player is playing his role really well. So uh, he's allowing himself to be led becoming distracted and not coming up with many ideas. The ideas he does come up with, uh, he feeds through me due to the fact that in game, we have known each other uh, for the longest and I have protected him the last three months. The lapse player is a nomad as in one of the first timers, the other, f- as is one of the first timers. The other first timer is a rocker. And to my mind, he has the stats that should be leading most conversations. She just doesn't know at the moment what to ask for. Since I've never been in a group with such inexperienced players, what techniques can I use as a player to help the new players get a sense that they can come up with uh, for ideas and choices? The last thing I want to be is that player who makes all the decisions and chooses the route we take. But at the moment, the players are leaning very much on me. Should I maybe have a chat with the other experienced player and suggest he changes his approach slightly to allow him to take a more direct role in making suggestions so that at least it isn't all coming from me? An added complication is that currently we are having to all play online, so we have the uh, the vagaries of webcam chat to deal with, which might be stifling things a little more. How can I ensure that these new players don't get bored within a few sessions and feel that all they are doing is making up the numbers for dice rolling and combat? Signed, Richard C.
1: This is actually very germane to my game because Mike and Chris are a little less experienced than me uh actually that's there are a lot less
2: (laughs) yeah
1: um but i haven't played in a long time but you know so i'm really eager to kind of like get back into the game and play uh not to mention mike is just kind of naturally a less talkative guy and chris has a tendency to play characters that are more kind of uh nerdy and kind of socially awkward Um. So as a result, that kind of naturally leaves me as the kind of party leader. And so consequently, I chose to play a character that does have higher charisma. But I think the big thing is, to answer this guy's question, um, the biggest thing is, is, one, I would say don't talk to the other experienced player. You should talk to the other players that are less experienced in the game. And what, where that comes from is acknowledging what the other characters are good at and like deferring to them almost like, well, Hey, like, you know, your guy like can do this well, right? Like, Oh, your guy can like pick locks. I come up, I see the door is locked and, and really kind of treat them like they're a member of, you know, uh, they're an expert at this thing because their stats on their character sheets say so. And so defer to them and give them the opportunity to shine at something that they're supposedly good at. And instead of like telling them or whatever, be like, hey, you know, like, doesn't your guy have like, you know, like really good lockpick skills? And like, you know, be vocal about like appreciating the things that they're good at. Uh, And moreover, rather than giving directives, it's important to ask questions. Newer players do need someone more experienced to kind of govern the direction of the party, to be the face of the party. But if you want to do that in a way that like seems fairly uh, equitable, what you do is you just you make a decision for the party, let's say uh, some sort of direction or course of action. So we're going to go investigate this area, and then rather than telling the DM just that, you look at the other players and you say like does that sound good or do you guys think that there's something else that we should be doing first right ask them questions that are pointed and direct that are like give them an opportunity to be comfortable speaking up with you know deferring your opinion and if they're not if they're just like oh sounds good right like go along but then at least now they feel like they're not being led by the reins they're part of the team that they actually said yes to this they made a decision and maybe they're deferring to you And then, you know, you ask them questions, like allow them to feel comfortable having a voice. And once they have they are comfortable having a voice, they will bring up things like, oh, well, like I was going to go do this and you're like, oh, you know, try to use verbiage that indicates that you value not only their opinion, but their skills within the group. That's a great idea while you do that, I'm going to do this. And does it sound good if we reconvene, right? Like you ask in questions instead of terse declarative statements. Um, And that makes them feel more involved and engaged and they get more comfortable. And as that comfort level grows, then they become more uh, comfortable in their role in the party and they feel like they have a voice. So they'll be more likely to speak up in the future.
0: I got something to add onto that for the GM as well. I found out just the way you say things is completely different to some players like uh, um, especially like the dude that's playing the rocker boy uh, that's just it when they come up if they're not a very to them as a real person if they're not very uh, uh, very talkative or if they're not very charismatic in real life you know don't say what do you say I found out if you say what would you like to say they'll more or less say what they want to get through and then as you start yeah. working with that it kind of they get to open up to the other players as they start to feel a little bit more comfortable and then they will they'll they just say yeah they'll just they start saying like shit
1: Yeah, don't feel like it's like like they're being recorded on the <clears throat> official record what would you like to say well i want to communicate mm-hmm. you know that that like you know we're not going to take this shit from this guy and like you know like i want to be kind of stern and and assertive and like upfront, and it's like, okay, well, he says this. Like, how do you respond to that? You know, and it's like, okay, I don't feel like I have to be put on the spot. I have a few moments to kind of think through my words, um, and so yeah, because I, I think some of it starts with the players too. When you're, when you're an experienced player and you're building a party, you know, you have to be cognizant of the other players that maybe get kind of enamored with the idea of a character but it doesn't play to their natural tendencies this is why I played a character with high charisma like when I played Kane Kane did not have high charisma but I just kind of found myself in a natural leadership Mm -hmm. position because I just kind of do that I just pull over you know I like strong like you know no-nonsense kind of characters and so I was like I need to play to that and so similarly like Beto was like well I was thinking you know that like maybe your character would be more the face of the party when when you're being a PC. And I was like, yeah, but I don't want my guy as an NPC to be governing what all the other players do. Yeah. And he's like, I didn't really want to be the face of the party. And I was like, okay, then you can't play a paladin, a sorcerer, a bard, a warlock. All these are very charisma-forward mm-hmm. classes. You, you're na- people are naturally going to look to you. You can't, you know, like Patrick's <laughs> character in the Curse of Strahd, it's like you have a 16, 17 charisma, and you're just kind of a quiet, like, into the shadows, kind of guy. Even if that is the case, you you know, the, if you have a high charisma and you don't say much, the other players, player characters, if they're doing their job, they're gonna like kind of see you as the strong, silent type. You know, mm-hmm. they're gonna follow. They're gonna the charisma means characters will follow you, right? If you don't want to be the kind of character that people rally around, then don't play a character with high charisma. I find the same problem with characters that play. Um, Sometimes I've played with people that are, I mean, not to be derisive, but they're not exactly bright. You know, they're kind of like, you know, they're just normal dudes. Yeah. Like you, They're not even as bright as like you or me, right? They're just and that's,
0: like, that's why I like playing spellcasters and wizards usually, because in real life I'm a big, fat dum-dum, but I can have an 18th int- 18 intelligence.
1: Right, but at the same time, if you play something that's too to divorce from your own proclivities, if a guy has an 18 intelligence and you're like a normal guy Mm. and you don't lean on the fact that your abilities say that you're smart, then you're just going to kind of like not know how to play the character, right? Like, oh, I'm really smart. And it's like, okay, but you don't, but you're not really smart. I mean, you have to kind of understand the character versus your player. And I think for new players, that can be kind of hard. And so I think experienced players have to give um have to kind of like help usher characters or player new players into aspects of the game that play to their strong suits and maybe still give them a little curiosity like mike has really never played a rogue
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and i was like dude this like this suits your sensibilities you're kind of quiet you stay to the back of the party you're always like how can i like get one over on somebody how can i like you know, and plus he does martial arts and stuff. So it's like, you know, he's kind of like a, you know, we make this joke of that he's like a ninja. You, know, <laughs> like, you should play a rogue, right? And sure enough, he's playing a rogue and it fits perfectly. Like he was awesome last night. He was like, oh, I scroll, fuck this dude up. And then I take his gold once he's dead. And I'm like, you guys deal with all the social fallout. Like, I'm just here to like, you know, try to get paid. And so it's like, you play to your natural sensibilities, but you I get part of the fantasy role playing aspect is you don't want to be a character. <laughs> that's too much like you, but has like some elements that you wish you had as a character. Yeah. Right. I think that that's very telling. It's like, you know, usually what kind of character you play is kind of like a wish fulfillment. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, you play wizards. You probably wish you were a little more bookish and smart than you are. You play fighters who are assertive and direct. You probably wish you were a little bigger and stronger. Mm-hmm. Than you are, Right. And it's like, you know maybe it plays to your sensibilities, maybe it's wish fulfillment. For most players, it's probably a little bit of both, right? It's a little bit of both where it's like, I'm kind of you know, I'm naturally kind of a little more quiet and I kind of wish I was a little more bookish than I am. I'm gonna play a wizard. You know, and it's like
0: Yeah, going uh back to Richard here I can tell you firsthand, especially with the other guy, I found this a lot helpful. You said the other guy goes off of you. So in the same Chris Estrada campaign that we keep talking about, and this is mostly Dave's fault, I got elected as the leader. And yes, I was playing a barred warlock, but still uh, my character never saw himself as a leader.
1: You you don't seem like you want that role at all.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's because I wanted more interaction between the group when it was all just like, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? (laughs) And that's all you have
1: to but you have to, man, like I know you're 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 the DM typically. Mm -hmm. You've been DMing for a long time. But you have to like just to give the listeners an insight, we have uh what, seven Seven. party members. Seven party members and an NPC buddy. Everybody voted for Matt. Everybody. (laughs) Like, everybody. Like, you have to, at some point, Matt, you have to take up that mantle of, like, everyone respects my experience. And, like, maybe I don't want this role. But, like, the other players elected you for a variety of reasons. One, you're not a temperamental player. Right? You you give it to somebody like Patrick or Cody, they're temperamental. Right? They want someone that's even-handed, someone who understands the game and someone who will be Mm no-nonsense. Like, how do we get shit done? And so I think that, like, the last few sessions prior to that, too, you're like, I don't know, what are we doing? It's like, whether you want to be or not, you are the leader guy because you're just experienced, and people defer to that. And so you have to take up that mantle at some point.
0: But what I ended up doing was I started roping Cody into it, as we kind of had our little powwows when everybody else was being super quiet. Mm -hmm. Cody and I had our rigmarole in between and that's just said I kept uh, saying what are your thoughts and I would go you know ah, that's a bad idea I don't think that's a good idea he always end up being either because he was a very dominant character he'd either to say I don't care this is what should be done or he'd say it's your call you, you lead us you tell us where to go
1: right but rather than I would say that the better way to do that is if you're going to defer to someone else Patrick or Or Cody, then, rather than kind of having some ambiguity about it, sure, maybe they're influencing your decisions, and maybe Cody is the de facto leader, but you still like need to be like, this is what we're doing because Mm -hmm. this is what the party expects. This is where we're going. This is what we're doing. And rather than like, you know, okay, we're because you're the kind of player that pushes the story forward, Mm -hmm. and the other players are kind of like, oh, we're gonna get in, and they're like, oh, this is this where we're going. Like, you almost don't even seem, at times, like, with the battle with the vampires. Everyone's like, oh, I gotta get in here in the vampire. you're like, I'm just searching crates. I'm gonna search this crate. I don't care. You know, it's to the point where it's almost like you... Uh, to someone like Cody, who is like a min-maxer, you almost seem to, like, underuse your character's potential because you just kind of want to get on with the story. And I think that sometimes that can kind of seem... Uh, apathetic to the other players, like mm. almost just have no fucks to give about like what happens, and, yeah. and that's like that does does well to kind of like undermine your leadership role. But then you know, I was kind of thinking, I was like, maybe maybe I'll just kind of have like a like a power struggle, like a like a uh, uh, the characters and everything, and the players kind of like are starting to have some doubts about your leadership capabilities. Maybe they're preferring to someone else more and there was some sort of, like, insurrection, and that might be kind of fun and cool. But, Ooh, that
0: would like, be cool.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, because especially because Patrick is the kind of guy, he is the strong, silent type. He just kind of, like, says these terse, declarative statements, and he's rigid and unflinching in the way that he looks at things, and he doesn't see himself as a leader at all, but, like, his character is the kind of character that likes to get his way, and so maybe people will gravitate more toward him if your character is more reluctant, and hmm. he's, like, less reluctant, but, you know, we haven't gotten to that point yet. Yeah. The game kind of fizzled out.
0: But anyway, all I got to say is that if you feel like your character, it shouldn't be the one that is. That's the other thing, I guess, is that I guess if you're afraid of trying to give them too much room to become the character and it's going to make the the game session stagnant, like it's not going to lead anywhere. Just that, like Dave was saying. If you have the experience and you have the know-how to do it, push it the best you can. But just ask questions. Just in character, you could do it as well. Like, you sit down and get ready for the run. Say, we need this to happen. What can you bring to this? And if they're having a problem with it, come up with some shit. Like, and I know this, he was talking about his character has memory loss and all that. But just like, I, you know, I used to work with this one guy that was a lot like you. He would usually do something like this. Do you think you can pull that off? And that really helps. That's just that the more information that you can give other players, the more it helps them, especially the new guys, come out of their shell, start talking a little bit more and start getting into the character.
1: Yeah, it's not to mention, too, you can do it in a meta sense, too, because the DM's job is not to coach the players. Mm-hmm. And the DM will appreciate, or the GM, I guess in this case, if it's a Shadowrun campaign, um, will appreciate you kind of, like, coaching the other players, right, metagame, like, to tell them, like, hey, don't forget that you can always, like, you know, whatever, whatever, or, like, hey, man, your guy has, like, high charisma, you're probably better off to kind of step up to the front, and and like don't be afraid you know like i got your back or whatever like you know we're all on the same team here and like what is it that you do well versus what are, what is it that i do well and kind of coach them as a player to fulfill the potentials and the role of their character you know almost like in a metagame sense and generally dms gms try to not have players metagaming but there's a lot of latitude at least for me when i'm running a game A more experienced player is always like, "Hey, don't forget that you can always use this thing, or you can always do this, whatever." Because new players often feel like they don't want to stifle, like they don't want to, like I'm so like uh, I don't know what I can do and what can I what can I do and I don't want to. So they always like underperform because they're always afraid of like looking foolish, and you have to give them permission in the way that you would with like like an improv situation, right? The first rule of improv is say yes to whatever the player, the other improv person is creating. They don't say like, oh, well, I walk through this door and like, hey, how's it going? And you're like, no, that's not a thing. Right? Mm. You, know? <laughs> you don't do that. You say yes to whatever it is that they do and that's how you collaboratively build the story. And so if you, in a metagame sense, let the other players know like, hey man, you're really good at this. Like, why don't you step to the forefront or why don't you, sneak up like do you do you you know and in asking questions as opposed to making statements you're good at stealth go up to the front of the party and sneak up to that door you say something like hey aren't you trained in stealth do you think you could sneak up there like without like the guy noticing because if you could then like you know i can't do that like
2: Mm -hmm. that'd
1: be a big benefit and then you make the player be like yeah you know what i do i do have stealth and i probably could do it let's see if i can do it right and, uh, you know, and then, you know, let them know, like, hey, like, if it doesn't go well, like, here's maybe our plan that we could, like, go. Does that sound good to you? You know, like, if, 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 if you get found out, like, you know, we'll rush in and kind of, like, you know, lay down some cover fire for you. Like, does that sound good? And, like, you know, the more questions you ask, it just punctuate every thought you have with engaging the other players that don't know as much. And they'll just feel like you value their opinion as opposed to trying to keep them in their place because they're inexperienced or whatever. And that's like no not fun for anybody.
0: Well, Richard, if you ever do listen to this, let us know what happened. I I always love hearing about new players coming back in and getting into the actual game. But speaking of getting into the game, ooh, Dave. I don't know Let's if you it. I don't know if you saw last week, last week, Wednesday at 1128 a.m. Let's see announcement next week. So it's coming. week, What hints for upcoming D&D books? WotC uses Unearthed Arcana to playtest D&D material, which often ends up in their later hardcover book. Mages of Strixhaven was an Unearthed Arcana in uh, June of 2021, and Strixhaven, a Curriculum of Chaos, was published in December of 2021. Draconic Options was an Unearthed Arcana in April of 2021, and Fizban's Treasury of Dragons came out in October. The same applied with uh, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft and other books lead time appears to typically be somewhere around six months. So what have we recent, uh, what have we recently, which might give us an insight into upcoming books. Watsi is holding a press event this coming. So coming up Friday with an embargo, uh, with an embargo for March 22nd, um, which means the announcement is just around the corner. Uh, so this is all coming from, uh, tabletop RPG news. uh, uh, Unearth Arcana has slowed in the last year or so, uh, and there have been two big notable articles when it comes to Unearth Arcana. In August of 2021, Travelers of the Multiverse. Six months after this was February, so if the six month lead time theories hold true, uh, we're gonna get like a multiverse themed book, uh, which, with the amount of spe- uh, speculative chatter about Spelljammer, maybe Planescape, uh, most likely Planescape, because uh, with the whole Strixhaven stuff and a couple other things, they've really been pointing towards Planescape. And then the other one, March, uh, Heroes of Kryn. Uh, This UA on Earth Arcana was released last week. Uh, Six months would put a Dragonlance hardcover roughly about September of this year, around the same time that Weiss and Hickman's new Dragonlance novel is going to release. So out of those two... Which one do you think is actually more likely to come out
1: between multiverse and Dragonlance? Yeah, and if
0: which multiverse one would you prefer?
1: All right. First of all, I feel I need to correct the record. When whoever wrote this article said, "Unearthed Arcana," that often because that is no, there is a whole slew of stuff. This is why I don't allow Unearthed Arcana sources because. It is not a very big percent of stuff that gets enshrined in the actual canon of rules. They play tested an unearthed arcana. I look at that like a beta test, and mm-hmm. then it gets enshrined. Once it gets enshrined in the canon rules, then mm-hmm. I allow it. But I wouldn't say it's often. That would apply more than 50% of the time. I don't think that holds true. True debt. Just to correct the record. Um, I think it's probably more likely that we will get a another campaign as opposed to something that unifies campaign. I would love to see a more of a kind of classic in the vein of, uh, mistra or gray style campaign, kind of a, you know, traditional heroic fantasy. But I think that the general sensibilities of the market are more toward high fantasy. And so as a result, the new Lord of the Rings show, whatever you think of that, which, you know, we kind of touched on that a little bit already. But I think that the appetite is for that. And so I think that Dragonlance um, and that kind of high fantasy, super prominent magic, romance, political intrigue mm-hmm. is um, is more likely. But I got to tell you that I don't feel like that translates I feel like the market for that is just for people that actually don't—they kind of like to study it academically, but don't really have much interest in instituting it in their games. That's just an instinct I have.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, there's a whole subset of people that just like to buy role-playing stuff, and they like to read up on it and kind of—but ha- like when it comes to their actual campaigns, their ha- campaigns run through like heroic fantasy, and I would like to. See more of that, and the Greyhawk, a sense of the early editions of D anD D. But I think the the Dragonlance is more likely because of the, you know, anything that like more dragons the better, right? It's like bacon is better on everything. <laughs> like, <laughs> I I don't I don't subscribe to this philosophy. I think I'm I'm in the camp of people that like it's not like everything involving dragons and and like dragons on every fucking like rooftop is like cool like. I think dragons are cooler when it's like the culmination of a campaign and it's something that's rare. I feel this way about magic items and campaigns too, where I, I kind of like them to be more rare and more of a treat because there's not very many things. Like you can dump gold in the player's fucking laps all day, but the things that they can't buy with gold, renown, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, respect, uh, and fame, and. Magic items, artifacts, these things that they can't buy are more rewarding to them. And so it's like, you know, if you use them sparingly, then then that's good. Otherwise, you're just playing like this like hierarchy game where you just constantly have to one up it to the point where it's like it just gets kind of ludicrous at some point. where mm-hmm. It kind of undermines the notion of what it means to be exceptional, and what it means to be. You know, a hero in this realm or whatever, and so uh, I think I'm in the minority there. I might be wrong, but um,
0: I, I don't know. The There's a lot of people clamoring for that Dragonlance setting. Mm-hmm. Like tons of people are really into that Dragonlance setting, which is fine. I I haven't read a Dragonlance novel in forever, but I I enjoyed them back when I was younger.
2: Yeah,
1: I did too. But it seems to me it seems a lot more like a soap opera.
0: It is. It's very much a soap opera,
1: and it's like. And that probably plays well for a novel, mm-hmm. right? A Game of Thrones, for instance. But when it comes to like an action-oriented RPG that plays out on a tabletop, it needs to be action-oriented, and I think more of a heroic fantasy element, where maybe there is some political intrigue at some junctures, uh, is good. But it you know like it gets too abstract like a chess game for the players and it's not concrete and direct and real relationship between their hard work as a PC and the direct consequences of that then I I think you kind of lose some people I I but maybe I'm just more of an old-school traditional dungeon crawler but I, I do think the public sensibilities is wanting to uh, have that more high fantasy element you know it I think it's a millennial sensibility of a whole like change the world kind of like, I'm going to go out and do, you know, change the world. Everybody has a job. that's going to change the fucking world. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I'm not, I don't subscribe to that philosophy and try to cultivate players that are interested in the style of game that I'm interested in, which is that more heroic fantasy. And, and even like to me, even more of a low fantasy setting, I like more of a gritty, low fantasy kind of dark, um, more of a Barfire Great Monster, Conan, Game of Thrones kind of feel. Um, but I'm I'm in a super minority there where it's like very few people really want that. And so I just kinda have to make do with splitting the splitting the baby there.
0: I don't know. The next one I think that people that's just it I can't believe unless what I'm hoping that they're doing Like, Spelljammer, I don't give a fuck about, really. Adventures in Space, you're just going around and fighting illithids and world hopping. Okay, that's fine and dandy, but Planescape, there's so much that can open up with Planescape because not only are you hopping the, the, uh, the elemental planes, which you don't really in Planescape, you're going to different worlds. So if they came out with a source book for Planescape, and it started in Forgotten Realms, but it had a section for if you went to the world of Greyhawk, if you went to the world where it was the setting for Mystara or even Dark Sun, which is their sword and sorcery uh, one, would that be something that you'd be interested in?
1: Yeah, I don't like the whole idea of like you, uh, multiverse within d d I I don't know why, but it it seems kind of more like a sci-fi concept than a fantasy concept. Mm -hmm. And so I like the notion that, like, if I'm playing in Forgotten Realms, that Forgotten Realms is kind of, like, occupies the same place that Earth does. and You know, just replace Earth with the Forgotten Realms world, which I guess is... uh, Toril. uh, Toril, right? As opposed to the Oif voice Mm -hmm. in the uh, I don't like the idea that like these can all be joined in some because to me that pushes the magic to such a high level that it like needs to be so commonplace I just I'm not a big fan of uh, I think that magic of a high level is best used sparingly otherwise you run a ground of breaking the world you you run a ground of like having things that push it out of the realm of medieval fantasy into more steampunk, into more whatever. And and it's like, I, I kind of like the purity of a genre. And so it's like medieval fantasy is medieval fantasy. And you have to limit the prevalence of magic and the prevalence of these things. Otherwise you end up with steam engines that are powered by, you know, steam methods or, or gin or whatever. And then you have... Oh, well, all these things like when it becomes too commonplace then it becomes like it, it starts to resemble our world in too similar of a way and then it just kind of raises the question of like why are people still wear armor and ride horses and like use swords to combat when it's like you know why if they can do this why can't they do this whole other slew of things they have these things basically from america's industrial revolution in what's supposed to be medieval times And I get that, like, I'm a bigger fan of, like, taking that, like, that historical medieval grittiness to, like, a deeper level. Like, a basic heroic fantasy in D&D, for instance, has a greater degree of gender equality than uh, an appropriate time in history for medieval fantasy. I'm fine with that. I'm really fine with that.
2: Mm -hmm. Like, it's, it's...
1: it's good. You know, you have women that are warriors and whatever, even though in the 1400s or whatever, we wouldn't have had that. It's a fantasy world. And so, uh, you know, sex slavery largely doesn't really exist. And, you know, I'm a fan of a campaign that really does kind of like, whoa, this is dark and gritty. And so the characters' heroic actions have a bigger impact on this general desperate state of affairs. But I'm fine with a heroic fantasy. But when you start getting up to, like, everything it's like well you know what there's an integration and like orcs just kind of move freely and it's like well i thought orcs were like bad guys and it's like well now it's kind of what is that what are the implications for that some questions that don't get answers there's already enough of that in D D. like what the fuck? why do dragonborn like ladies have breasts <laughs> what? they're not mammals <laughs> do they hatch from eggs <laughs> Are they reptiles? Are they cold-blooded? Why don't they die when they go up in Arctic... You know, it's like, okay, we can ignore some of that, because they don't get into, like... uh, Mike was making fun of this. He was like, so what's up with, like, do Dragonborn have, like, like cat dicks that, like, uh, retract up in them? Or, like, do they have, like, normal... What does it mean if you're, like... Okay, so humans and elves breed. But, like, what about dwarves and halflings? Humans and halflings. Humans and orcs. Humans and kobolds. Like, Do these things work? Like, what are the, what's the biology? And just kind of start to, like, go, okay, well, humans and orcs can breed, and humans and elves can breed, but humans and halflings can't? Like, why? Mm -hmm. I don't know, because I said so, right? And it's like, okay, you can kind of, like, hand wave away a certain amount of that, but when you start putting it up to higher and higher echelons, and then the characters, like reasonably, might have some stuff that undermines the world building and be like, hey, what about this? And you're like, I don't know, don't, don't look at that, like, do something else, right? So, I would, if I were to put money on it, I'd say, yes, Dragonlance is the more likely outcome because of uh, not only the appetite for high fantasy, but also, uh, there's that nostalgia factor, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it enjoyed a lot of fanfare with the novels. It's the best format for a novel, so people want that campaign, and so the I think the appetite is greater than some sort of unifying multiverse thing. Uh, and especially because it's like if you, you you okay, so what other campaigns? Largely, they've been kind of comfortable with the Forgotten Realms, and a little bit of Eberron, couple. I kind of get the implication that the Ghosts of Saltmarsh takes place in the Greyhawk world, but there's really nothing specific about that. But anything that draws it out of the Sword Coast, I think is probably good. Like, okay, we get it. The Sword Coast is like a big area. Can we have more of the world? I
0: know there's so much up? of it. There's so much of it.
1: It's like okay, the population density is great here. We get that. But like can you give us a little more whatever? But part of it is just that you know, the tropiness of it. You gotta give players, you gotta give people what they expect and what they love and try to throw something that's a little bit different every time. But it's like when you clearly communicate the world and the universe is larger than this, and you're focusing on a 500 square mile area of it, it's like, well, you're really not doing any service by even introducing those other things as like concepts in the world. If they don't play to the game in any actionable way,
0: Yeah, that's one thing I never I don't like to go on the diatribe of, but Jesus Christ, Watsy, it's like in Fair Ruin itself, on that single continent, you got Craghammer with like the, the high royalty of the dwarves. You've got uh Ikamu, the home of the Shadar Kai. You got High which is if you when you talk about Archmages and the greatest of all spellcasters, that's where you're gonna find them at the university there. There's just so much shit that you could go into instead of just staying right there on the Sword Coast. But one thing is if they did come out with Planescape, I dig it if it wasn't a single source book for Planescape, but it was a source book for all the other places. Like that's just it, if I wanted to go play on Greyhawk, this is what is there. It'll give you an overview of what it's like. Maybe there's some certain mechanics that you put in there because it's here. There's only two gods. St. Cuthbert, who is the only real prevalent one. And the only, his symbol is the cudgel, because if you don't believe in him, he comes down and he hits you in the head with a cudgel. Uh, you go to, um, you know, yeah, you go to shit. What was that? Uh, oh, fuck. We were just talking about the other one that's was right. Uh, it was actually right before Mistara. Uh Mistara. You got that, you got Dark Sun, and I do like the Dark Sun one. The, the Deserts of Athens, where you trade in rare metals, because metal isn't really, a, is a very, you know, steel is very hard to find, and yeah. Sorcerer Kings rule the lands, and the only way you can get magic is if a Sorcerer King gives you the ability. So, I would dig it if they did the Planescape one. I wouldn't say no to Dragonlance.
1: No, but here's my thing, is, like, I have this general attitude that what is it with fucking wizards and source books? Release more fucking adventures, especially <laughs> low-level adventures. If if you don't want to start a campaign that goes you from level 1 to 10 or 1 to 15, your options are very limited. They keep releasing source books. Van Richten's Guide, fucking Eberron, like whatever. And it's like, sure, these are great backdrops but you have to kind of, like, it seems like you're gearing the game toward younger players. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's fine, but what about the players that are legacy players? Players that have been playing for a long time and likely now have a career, have a wife, maybe have a kids? Those players want, like, out-of-the-box adventures that they don't have to devote all of their fucking time to in different scenarios and settings because I'm pretty sure I've ran through just about every published adventure for fifth edition a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I mean, I haven't played them all the way through to the terminus, but I have played them and I can kind of rank them in order of like how playable they are. But when you look at those adventures and the aggregate percent of the books that wizards have released, it's not a very large percent. I think it's like a source book should be a once in a great while kind of thing. But it's like, oh, yeah, like here's like a world building thing. And it it just seems kind of easy because it leaves everything kind of like, oh, well, you know, like here are the kind of building blocks. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to build a world. I want to like have an action oriented adventure that's in a world that's already established. And so give me some of that and it's like they don't really do that i mean there's maybe what 12 adventures probably campaigns that are that are like official wizards publications and everybody else like publishes things kind of and it's like and some of them aren't that great and mm-hmm. you're like okay i don't you know want to do that i don't want to run a campaign but like what about like a an amalgam of short adventures that are like take you from levels 1 to 3 not something that takes you from level 1 to 12 one to 10. What about the player that, like, or the group that wants to just run kind of episodic adventures? Where are the level one to two adventures, level three, five adventures? Like, there's just don't really exist. And it's a huge gap. And I get that maybe there isn't as much of an appetite for that. But I think that Wizards is kind of ignoring a market there. But maybe I feel that way because I'm in that market.
0: I've yeah. That'd be a good one. I actually have a really awesome Call of Cthulhu source book that is nothing but scenarios. And it's from, you know, the very beginning. And that's just it. Make a source book that is here's three to five adventures that are for level one to three. And then here's two for five to whatever. Here's a bunch for this much. And then there's here for level. If you want to do high end campaigns, there's two of them in there, too. Yeah. But, yeah, it looks like. uh to bring it to a close, at the very end, we know that there's a new, a third starter set coming out, Dragons of Stormwreck Isle. So there you go. There's a new uh level one to five, most likely, I'm guessing, because it wasn't that with both uh I think uh Lost Minds and
1: Dragon of Ice Yeah.
0: Those are both like one to five, weren't they?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give or take. And you know what? I will say that, like those are probably two of the best. Adventure.
0: Dude, Lost Minds is hard to, to fight with, man. That one is so good.
1: Yeah. Lost Mind of Fandelver is a fucking solid. Yeah.
0: Very solid. Solid
1: adventure. And Dragon of Ice Fire Peak is pretty good too. Um and so but it it's just a pathology of like Wizards is great at like introducing they're great at the beginning of things. Mm. Introducing a concept that like builds up. But they're not great. At like well what comes next what's after that mm-hmm. you know and they're not so good at like that they're constantly it's just like hollywood they're constantly rebooting and revamping and like you know like restarting franchise it's like can't you just give me a good thing that is like the next link in the chain how many times do I need to fuck- see fucking spider-man being in high school and early college <laughs> years the, most of the goddamn canon of Spider-Man, he is not that. He is an adult. He's an adult man. I want to see Spider-Man, not Spider-Boy. I would like to see Spider-Man for a fucking change. What does Spider-Man look like as an adult? Just, what? How many times do we need to see fucking Batman's parents die? I'm tired of seeing Batman's parents die. I know that Batman's parents die. What is Batman? That's why Dark Knight... Frank Miller's Dark Knight is great. It's like it's Batman in his Twilight years. Mm-hmm. You know? like, what does he look like then? And so it's like, give me some of that shit that like his different textures and variety. And that might be useful. But I don't know. But like, it doesn't seem like I'm in the majority there.
0: Yeah. Well, it also looks like uh, at the end of this article. So uh, after Dragons of Stormwreck Isle, which is supposed to be coming out at some point this year, Three, I, gu- I guess WotC has spoken about two brand new settings. Not including the Magic: The Gathering one or what is it, uh, Theros or whatever? They're Greek, there. something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, Theros.
0: Um, so two brand new settings and then two classics, which I'm guessing is I'm pinning one is going to be Dragonlance no matter what, and then uh, and then either Spelljammers, which I highly doubt, or Planescape. So um, that's what we got to look forward to.
1: Yeah, I mean i don't know like as far as campaign books and like world building shit like i'm just agnostic about all of it like mm. whatever i'm to the point now where i'm like i'm just gonna kind of make things irrelevant of campaign i'm just gonna build adventures that are like kind of in the vein because so much of that high level like political intrigue and history like you how many how frequently do you ever have campaigns where players even tap into that How do you tap into it in an actionable way that engages the players? It's all just academic shit, and I don't really need any of it.
0: I've got uh, for a script upcoming, I was going to save it for down the line, but that is one thing that I got something. Uh, Lore and and myth of your setting and how it can drive the players. That is something that I want to bring up at some point.
1: Yeah, let's discuss that at some point, but maybe move on to Cyberpunk. Yes.
0: We need to bring that in. Uh, because we, uh, I am a massive, massive fan of this, uh, of this setting, any sort of cyberpunk. And I know that ones that are really big right now, the veil and the sprawl are both powered by the apocalypse. And I am not a fan of that game system, but it all started back in. 1988, when Cyberpunk 2013 came out, uh, by Teller RCN Games, who still do Cyberpunk, that when they just came out with Cyberpunk Red, which is one of my absolute favorites. Uh, I believe it was still Mike that was doing it. I think it was. It should still be. Uh, but it, like, came out...
1: This is the way my
0: house is. It came out right on the edge of um, Gibson's work uh, right after Netrunner and all that other shit uh, that came out. And, of course, Blade Runner. Yeah. But if I was to ask you, Dave, what is your favorite heist movie?
1: My favorite heist
0: movie?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a tough it's a tough question.
0: And why do you think it is a great heist movie?
1: I think, see, I feel like I feel like my favorite heist movie is probably a little bit off the radar. So speaking about it is probably a little, like, I like Rafifi. Have you ever seen this movie? It's a Ooh, French New Wave movie. No. I like Rafifi. I like the Asphalt Jungle both of which are very good, but the original Ocean's Eleven is probably a contender. Ah, See, there you go. The original Ocean's Eleven is probably a contender. Um, Pithy, but like, I like kind of the more, um, like, for instance, Rafifi is part of the reason that it's so good. It's, It's a French heist movie, and there is like, during the heist, the actual meat of the movie, which is like 35 minutes maybe almost 40 minutes no dialogue none Damn. and so like to me to keep the, the viewer engaged for like the better part of like an episode of a television show without any dialogue is a great commentary to the visual storytelling that exists I think a great heist movie and and consequently a great cyberpunk Genre that focuses on heists needs to have great visual storytelling, and so mm-hmm. that comes to the the GM's ability to describe things in physical reality that reveal motives, character uh, intent, things like that. And so, this is, I think, the crux of what you should be establishing when you are cobbling together a narrative for a cyberpunk heist, you know, kind of genre because one of the things that I don't like about the cyberpunk genre or probably where we differ the first big thing is that cyberpunk is a genre I love. Okay, I really like that genre. But I don't much care for the what it loses between works of fiction like books and uh movies it loses a lot in translation to role-playing games and i think that it kind of like doesn't transfer as well as a heroic fantasy setting and so while i really like the cyberpunk genre on film it's probably somewhere in the middle of the pack as far as like or like second tier for me as far as like role-playing games because they just haven't found out A way to kind of capture the spirit of cyberpunk. Mm -hmm. And so like something like Blade Runner, for instance, is a great movie but like it's how do you translate the spirit of that Mm -hmm. into something that is more role-playing oriented. And the movies that are good, that are are best encapsulate what a good cyberpunk role-playing game should be are not that great. Like Johnny Mnemonic is a good example of this. Johnny Mnemonic is a Not a very good movie, Mm -hmm. a mediocre movie at best. But it is kind of like that spirit transfers to a role-playing game much better. But like something like Blade Runner, you can't really encapsulate in a in a in a adventure, right? It'd be trying to like have a role-playing game that like with Casablanca. I know great movie, great film, but not like so much. How do I engage the players and not just talk at them with
0: narrative? I know, and I can't wait because I was telling you about it last week about. Free League is making the Blade Runner RPG. And I thought the same thing. I was like, well, I don't know. But if you can make it work, you can make it work. But uh, so there are three different varieties of a cyberpunk game. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to do these three. You can only pick one of these three. But there's Pink Mohawk. There's Black Trenchcoat. And there's Mirror Shades. Yes. So Pink Mohawk is just that you are a you are a rebel of society. Uh, fighting against the, the AAA corporations that have garnered their own government and their own military and have taken over the world pretty much. And you are a lowly street thug that is kind of blind to, or you are not blind to them, but they are blind to you on the streets. Uh, you have fight,
1: fight the man, that's what I call
0: that. Fight um, the man, and the best way to do it is take a job from the man to fuck over the other man.
1: Right, this, this appeals to the, the people that kind of grew up on punk rock.
0: Yep. And that's just it. The pink mohawk uh, version is just that. You go in guns ablazing. You go in flashy. You go in crazy, and you just wreck shop to get the job done. Exactly. Black, black trench coat, espionage, more spy uh, sort of way. And that's why I was asking heist because Mirror Shades is kind of a mix between the two, <clears throat> where you're not as flashy, but you're the best of the best. You are a train killer, but you are also a trained wordsmith and you know how to get shit done. Yeah. Uh, I
1: think the biggest difference is that the black trench coat, uh, again, the pink Mohawk appeals to people that are like kind of grew up on punk rock and they kind of like want this futuristic dystopian future where it's like these, you know, there's a totalitarian government of sorts and you're fighting the man. Whereas the black trench coat more appeals to people like me, who kind of like the film noir genre. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is why I like, love Braid Runner so much. Cyberpunk with film noir. Yep. Right? Great
2: fucking movie.
0: Same. That's what. That's why I was asking what your favorite heist movie is, because when it comes to the cyberpunk series, I much prefer the black trench coat, and even the mirror shades uh, quite yeah. a bit, I yeah, really because I really love that espionage, the heist.
2: Right.
1: And then when you layer over, like, okay, so you take the... the a more noir kind of thing. And then you're like, but we want it to be kind of like pithier and we want it to be like, you know, characters that are like clever and charismatic and like, you know, play the game or whatever. This is, this is why, you know, Ocean's Eleven is where well, you're fucking Frank Sinatra, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, who's, who's fucking cooler than Frank Sinatra? I mean, maybe Paul Newman, maybe Steve McQueen, but like, they're not a long list of guys like that. And so you kind of plays into the sensibilities of more polish and more like uh, the world is narrower, where it's like John Wick does this well, where there's like these, there's this world at large and there's these pockets of secret societies kind of like off the radar, kind of operating under the, the veneer and the facade of general society. Whereas the noir concept is more like, no, it's more fatalistic. And there's more like, you're just trying to eke out a living against shoveling shit against the tide of like, no matter what you do in a 1984 kind of sense of the world word, the world is just what it is. And it's just, you're, you're never going to change that in any meaningful way. It's much bleaker. And so I like that concept, but I, you know, Probably because I have more darker sensibilities about things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can I can see the entertainment value in each, and which of those you probably play probably depends on the sensibilities of your players.
0: Yeah, and then uh, a lot of things haven't changed much with uh, Cyberpunk, the actual game, since 1988, other than a lot of the hacking. Rules have changed a lot. I much prefer, even from playing a uh, Cyberpunk twenty twenty from nineteen ninety. God, the net running, uh, rules were just fucking horrible. But now with Cyberpunk Red, they are so much better. But uh, you start with your classes, which is your solo, which is just your fighter military type. Uh, you got your rocker boys, which are just that. They are uh, they're usually some sort of celebrity that can uh cor- you know coerce the masses you got your media types uh be it a you can be a reporter a cameraman just a journalist uh corporates if you live in the corporate world and you work in the corporate world fixers guys that know everybody and always have a guy to go to oh you need something i got a guy for that uh you got your nomads which are drivers which can uh they jack into their cars and become one with their vehicles uh your net runners or uh Uh, your medics, things like that. They kept going. So, Dave, I don't think you've ever played actual cyberpunk itself. No, I have So, it's a lot like D&D in a way that if you took the skills and you times it by 10, uh, but you got your main stats, like your strength, body, charisma, intelligence. uh, Cool. Cool is an actual stat uh, because, of course, you got to be cool. Uh, And you do have luck, which you can... Use uh, your luck uh, replenishes every game session, but you can use it to add onto your uh, your rolls. Uh, so the, the initial mechanics: you roll a D ten, you add the mod in your skill. That's what you get, and you're trying to hit a target number. Pretty simple. With uh, firearms, there is a certain target number depending on how far you are and the weapon that you're using. You're just trying to hit that target number. And then it goes against their... Uh, of course, the damage is just subtracted from their armor. But then the cool thing is that your armor is... Uh, oh, God, what do they call it? Um, depl- shit. But it goes that... Depletable. What's that? Depletable? Yeah, it is, but I can't remember what the actual name is. Oblated. It's ablated. Uh, uh, so, yeah, if your armor starts at 7... Every time you get hit, unless it's armory piercing rounds, it goes down by one until it's just gone. And then you got to fix it, of course. Uh, But it's a pretty simple system, and they've really made it simple for hacking as well. The only thing I don't like about it, and that's just that there's barely anything I don't like about it, and I think they make it cool, is that every single class has that one special ability that they do. Like with... uh, Nomads is their driving in their cars and being able to jack into the cars. Your fixer, you always have a, a guy that you can go to. Um, the solos, with their weapons, they have a certain amount of weapons that they're really trained in. So that's kind of cool, but one thing I do like in like Shadowrun is that you can just build what you want with a little bit of everything. So if you wanted to have a dude that was really good with melee weapons, but is also still... Uh, has that face values you can do that but after cyberpunk uh, in 1988 there's a couple that i know there's like some french ones some swedish games that come out Uh, but the next big one would be shadow run in 1989 my personal favorite bringing the two things together and just like any other cyberpunk setting goddamn the fluff the lore the stories that go into these fucking books. I swear to God, each of these books is probably a a good, a quarter to a third of the book is nothing but fluff and lore, which is great. I dig it. Uh, I always liked that about the vampire, the masquerade books as well. They had a shit ton of lore. Uh, But uh, Shadowrun comes out bringing together the fantasy world along with the cyberpunk uh, genre. Still, as they got a little bit more into that, they're the ones that really brought out that pink mohawk uh thing cuz in 1989 uh that was the thing coming out around that time the big punk rock uh revolution coming in and uh uh anarchy was a huge name going around then uh and one thing i found out doing research on this i thought you might find this kind of fun so GURPS, old steve jackson the guy that created gerbs and the steve jackson's Uh, games which everybody should know about Munchkin and all that Uh, so he made GURP Cyberpunk or they were making GURP Cyberpunk and it comes out that their offices got raided by the FBI because (laughs) they found some of their notes on the hacking um, mechanics that they were coming up with and the FBI thought they were some sort of fucking terrorist or some shit
1: sounds
2: right
0: but uh not a lot of things really change. That's one thing that I really dig about is not a lot of things change other than both cyberpunk and Shadowrun have now a lot of their hacking stuff is now, of course, wireless as we've gotten ourselves into the future and a lot of other cyberpunk games are doing their hacking wireless as well. I think cyberpunk does a little bit better because you still have to be a certain distance from like a node to do your hacking. But, uh, So there's uh, so there's those three types. There's the pink mohawk, black trench coat, mirror shades. And then, of course, each of those comes with its own type of work. There's when a a good run comes up or a good job comes up, there's always the three things that you got to look for. Is there going to be what's the legwork going to be like? How much time do we get to do to do our research on this? Is there going to be any wet work, which means are we going to kill anybody? Will there be any demolition? And that's where the fun comes up. And I know that's what some people don't like about cyberpunk games is that some of it, because people think that it gets too political with the corporations and all that. Oh, well, you're supposed to be against the corporations, but you work with the corporations. Yeah, sometimes you do. You're the guy that fucks over other people by working with guys that you want to fuck over. But uh the legwork is my favorite part of the uh of the game because that's where you get to sit down and you get to come up with the plan. And I don't know what it is about that, but I just fucking love that. And it just makes me think of that just it uh as a oh god, what's his name? Uh, the lead ocean guy from Ocean's 11. Billy Ocean. Billy Ocean. When Billy Ocean sits there and he tells how the heist is going to go and you get to see it happening as he's talking about it and then it finally yeah. the last thing that he talks about, it happens and then the movie just progresses. Yeah. See, that's the kind of shit I love. You get to sit there and you be like, this is what we're going to do. And you sit down there and you guys all lay out this plan and then you go and you just execute it and hope, cross your fingers, that it goes off just how you planned it.
1: Well, that's part of the appeal of it, right? It's like what you're doing in that moment is you're anchoring in the audience expectations so they know when to go like, to breathe a sigh of relief, or to feel like maybe something won't go off as it's supposed to, or understand when there's a complication, and so you're you're ratcheting up the dramatic tension. Otherwise, it just exists in a vacuum. You don't have a you don't have a blueprint for how things are supposed to go, and you don't know when is this a big complication? Is it not a big complication? Is it like is it exactly as intended? And sometimes they'll play with your expectations where they'll lay out the blueprint and something that they don't lay out might seem like a complication. And then you're like, oh, no, it was all part of the plan all along. Right. Those are kind of the Mm -hmm. the clever reveals of like what the camera does and what the script does. And that's more in line with kind of the heist film as opposed to the more noir genre or (coughs) excuse me. Or the more like, you know, move fast and break things kind of cyberpunk thing. Um, I think that the Pink Mohawk probably has the least amount of like nuance to kind of like tap into your more like cerebral self. Mm -hmm. But like I get that, you know, you might not want it to be too cerebral where it's like almost everything is abstract. Everything is kind of happening. Like what is the actionable thing that the players are doing right here and now? And how do we have that action of a success or failure resonate throughout the rest of the plot of the adventure? So things that do this well, fantasy elements that do this well, give you a real sense of the stakes, right? I always think of uh, kind of the Battle of Helm's Deep. and Remember that scene in the Battle of Helm's Deep where there's the guy and he's running with the, the torture mm-hmm. the explosive. And it's like, this is an encapsulate, and Legolas is trying to shoot him from the top. And so it's like this real sense of dramatic tension and this micro moment that it's like, you know that like if he succeeds in getting there before Legolas like, can kill him, he blows up the wall. That makes the, the siege of Helm's Deep more likely and makes the fate of Middle-earth more precarious. So it resonates all the way up to several echelons to have an implication of a greater sense. And this is more germane and heist-style adventures, where uh, in the, like you mentioned, in the noir sense of the adventure, is much more morally ambiguous. You have characters that are like, well, you know, it's not clear-cut. The pink mohawk genre is more there's a clear cut good guys and bad guys and the good guys are working against the bad guys whereas the noir is like more like hey look man i'm not going to i'm not going to change the system and i'm not going to change the world so you're likely a more morally morally compromised character and have to make some concessions for your own self preservation and whatever like you can't really do anything against anyone if you're dead or marginalized to a degree that would make you impotent to help. And so those, to me, it's almost like a difference between a crisp line and an us versus them versus a making concessions toward the greater good, a moral quandary versus a logistical quandary. The heist movie is more of a logistical quandary. How do we succeed with the logistics and the mechanics as opposed to morally questionable activities? And that all just depends on what the theme of your campaign are and, or is and what the sensibilities of your characters are. Are they more interested in kind of their own inner demons? Are they more interested in their character's capabilities and kind of how those capabilities come to fruition to a success or failure aspect? And so that's a question you have to ask yourself when you're crafting a campaign for different characters or laying out the world and kind of explaining to your characters, this is kind of what I'm interested in to play through the game. And so let's kind of lean into those elements of the game as opposed to try to diverge it. This is the problem we always have with Vampire, right? It was like, try to lean into the horror (laughs) aspects of the game and the sensibilities of the players we have. It's like, and yeah, I don't really want a horror game. They want, like, uh, I'm a superhuman and I'm just going to kind of, like, move fast and break things. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, that's not really in the spirit of this game. Let's play something else where you can be a larger-than-life heroic character. And, you know, you're pushing the action of the plot forward. So it's like plot versus theme versus character development are all different lenses by which you view the plot. And if your characters are more interested in one than another, and may be trying to shoehorn an action-oriented, a plot-driven narrative through a, a lens that is more inherently character-driven. Maybe it's not the game for you. Maybe you need to consider something else.
0: <clears throat> when, was the la- yeah, when was the last time, because this is a big thing, uh in the cyberpunk thing is that uh so you're the johnson or whoever is the fixer whoever's coming up with your job a lot of times it is because they can't have you know things can't get bloody we need to make this clean when was the last time you played a dnd game or a medieval fantasy game where the king you know or whoever is just like i have this uh this quest for you but you can't kill anything you have to keep yourself quiet just like, uh, how do you think the players would kind of uh, come up with that?
1: Well, right, because especially that—that's the problem with D and D. D and D is more trope-based. Characters are more—they're more comfortable with like tropes and stereotypes as a shortcut or concepts, mm-hmm. right? Because D and D is an inherently more action-oriented game, so it's like you say you can't kill anything. It's like, well, but I built my character to be the guy that kills shit. Yeah, yeah. You know, I seem like I'm my character is being marginalized in this regard. And it's like that's no fun for the character that wants to be a guy that is like you know, wading into the fray and slashing up bad guys. And so you can't, you know, D&D needs to adhere to the whole spotlight rule, which is Every player should get a chance to be in the spotlight. There's a lock, there's a trap. Oh, that's your rogue, right? We have a horde of enemies, or we need, you know, somebody to find out like what this script says on the wall or to find out if something is radiating magic. We have a wizard for that. We need somebody who can kind of like you know hold off the tides of the enemy while the rest of the party figures out some sigil sequence like well we have a fighter for that you know we, we need somebody that can track somebody or like knows stuff about nature it's like oh well, we have a ranger for that mm-hmm. so you have to embed all of those things in your adventure and that's the appeal of D is that it has a lot of variety but when you have a more homogenized theme within your game like you would with cyberpunk you need to make sure that like to varying degrees like the 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 thing doesn't go up and down as much. It's not like this character, then that character, then this character, then that character. And that variety and that plot pushing forward is what's important in D&D. And so because it's predicated on tropes and stereotypes a little more, you don't need your NPCs to be morally complicated or or anything other than kind of what they appear to be. Maybe there's some treachery involved, but uh, in a world where you are striving for more nuanced, fleshed-out characters. There's not as much of a niche thing that like the players need to be kind of more unilateral in their goals and the theme of the adventure. And that's you know you can't have a you know all oh, you can't kill anything. It's like well you know then you just design the venture in like in a completely different way based mm. your character skills and it's like. You know, makes more work for the DM, where it's kind of embedded more in the concept of a cyberpunk adventure or a horror adventure, like we talked about last week.
0: Yeah, and uh, things with a uh, different things from a cyberpunk campaign, where the run can happen in one night, or it could take a week. Uh, the things in in like a medieval fantasy game is it is it's all about your power and the skills that you have to go and just go to the thing, get it done, where. In Cyberpunk, because you can manipulate your body anyway, you can get gadgets and gear to help you, but it all, uh, they become a little bit more, it's resource and reputation is the big thing. Uh, you need resources to afford uh, the stuff that you need for each run because they're very resource heavy. You go through a lot of resources for each run and then reputation in order to find it. Because if you don't have the reputation and you don't have that guy that they know you and you know them, you can't get the gear that you're going to need. Uh, one of the big things is uh, that's just it. your rep is so big in these games that that's just it. If you go on a a run and they say. I need this clean and you kill one person. And if that goes against your rep, your character's kind of fucked for a while because as soon as your rep goes down, that can really affect the entire campaign. The other thing is, is just that is that in cyberpunk games, they're usually really lethal, super lethal. So you can't just get the job and just immediately go to the place and start the whole going there. Just a guns a blazing. If you have enough guns and enough body armor, sure. maybe, but it's more you really need that time, that legwork to do your do your homework, case the place, ask some questions, uh, kind of find your way in. Because you could show up to a warehouse on the outside that looks like it's completely empty, make your way in. And next thing you know, you got 15 militarized uh, security guards on the inside just waiting for you And. uh I think I really like that when you have... I found this out while looking at like old first and second edition d and A lot of the old um, modules and stuff for them was that the characters were supposed to quest for items to finish the major quest. Because if you were, say, the big bad guy, you find out the big bad guy is a blue dragon. You had to find a way to make enough gold to get yourself either something that would stave off breath weapons you know, lightning damage, whatever you had to go in ready. Otherwise you were just fucked. Cause if you didn't have a good save against the breath weapon or something that was going to save against uh, a dragon's attacks, you were pretty well dead. And, uh, it's not like that these days, pretty much as long as you're, you got a weapon and some armor, you can go in just ready.
1: Well, I think there's a big difference too. And like the difference between a heroic fantasy is the player's ability to affect the world. Right? In heroic fantasy, the characters are larger than life and they're 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 uniquely poised to make a paradigm shift in the world. And in Cyberpunk, it's almost like no, it's almost like just you're just chipping away at a block of ice. Like nothing that you're ever gonna do is gonna ever change the foundation of this world. You're just making a hit to it in some way that's significant so you can continue to heck out a living because you you know get some prestige or you get some like, resources or or whatever and so you're you're kind of waging almost like a revolutionary guerrilla warfare against the man you're not meeting them on equal footing and being like we are peers and we will hash it out and whoever wins wins the fate of the universe. Mm-hmm. This is the appeal of a fantasy setting. You know, like it, it's simplistic, it's it's win the fate of whatever and win the day, and you're a hero and everybody reveres you and then every adventure ends with, but there's a greater threat.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Whereas Cyberpunk is more likely like, okay, we dealt a critical blow to the man or whatever.
0: Now I gotta and pay then- rent.
1: Right. And then, so you fast forward and then it's like episodic. It's almost like, okay, now we're just doing something different. It is not even likely related to that last thing because we're just dealing a series of like blows in various ways, but it's not amping up the stakes to some sort of final confrontation and final catharsis of like saving the world or whatever. And, and both of them have their appeal, uh, so, again, it just it depends on the sensibilities of your players. i play played D&D with players where it's like D&D is kind of made to be more action-oriented and it's not made to peel the onion like Cyberpunk is or a mm. horror game is it's a peel the onion, right? And some players will just, like, pick at something and you're like, there's no there there, dude. Like, you're kind of overcomplicating this. You would do well in a game where there is, like, layers of things to discover and figure out and the more you kind of dig to the bottom of that the better chance your success is and but like this is just like a straightforward like go save the princess quest right there's not a lot of like stuff below the surface beyond that that's happening behind the scenes but it seems like the sensibilities of your characters are kind of like root out conspiracy and and like look for hidden information and and kind of try to gain a leg up on on some power that be and that's more well suited towards certain styles of game than others and so it's kind of weird that like uh, some players don't want to like you know they don't want to step outside of that like window of more traditional rpgs when it's like their sensibilities actually slot well into a different genre of rpg you know and so uh it, it just you have to tailor, you know, a game, and that, that's part of the problem we had with the Star Wars RPG. Is that it's just like we could never really tailor it in a way that made it felt distinctly Star Wars. Mm-hmm. It always just felt like it had to It just always felt kind of like D and D, or like some other RPG with like a Star Wars skin or flavor over it that didn't really ever feel distinctly Star Wars because it's difficult to transfer that cinematic universe into something that is playable and like a game sensible the word.
0: Yeah. One thing that I've noticed from uh, a lot of the cyberpunk games, actually every single one I've looked at, it becomes very uh, realistic in the way that everyone, you have to pay rent. You got to say what type of living situation you're in. Uh, because, of course, the whole game is pretty much around just you got to make money. And why do you got to make money? Because you got to live. Same thing with you. got. There's a certain amount that you got to pay uh, in game time every month for food, yada, yada, uh, as well as um, family. Family is a big thing in cyberpunk games. We're coming from D&D where a lot of times, especially like the rogue, you know, oh, my parents are dead. I grew up yeah. in the streets. uh a lot of times there's always that one good like in shadow run you have um uh you've got your hindrances and are your flaws and uh good things as well as in uh cyberpunk there's some other stuff like that as well uh that's a lot of it a lot of the hindrances or flaws have to do with your family like you have a kid that you're trying to raise and A lot of the money that you make has to go to him or your parents are being held by uh, a criminal organization and you got to pay these guys off. Uh, So there's a lot of different stories that you can do with the cyberpunk genre as well. Not to say that you couldn't do it in D&D. It's just that there are mechanics in these games that kind of go towards that sort of thing.
1: Well, it's kind of goes back to my point about like D&D is an action oriented game, so it's focused on the narrative of the plot arc of the adventure where cyberpunk emphasizes a little more character, right? Because the world is so bleak and sterile, the things that make your characters unique are the very things that we think of as tapping into their humanity, right? Which is connections with other people, your friends, your romantic relationships, your family, and so you need to kind of in some way draw into crisp focus that these are the things that they're, they're not going to change the system. They're not going to, you know, overthrow the man, but what they can do is make things better for the people around them. And so that, that ladles on them a different responsibility than in a heroic fantasy, which is usually the fate of the realm, the fate of some village, right? This rests on your shoulders where it's less personal, but more, grand and because it's more grand it is more heroic but there is a certain poignancy to a cyberpunk thing where it's like no i'm not really i'm not trying to save the world or i'm not trying to uh you know take down this like corrupt corp I- i'm just i'm just trying to get enough money to feed
0: mm-hmm. my kid it's kind of him. the uh, it's like the wolverine thing uh i'm the best at what i do and what i do isn't very nice
1: yeah yeah, it's, so it's that kind of brings it down to earth a little bit more in a world that is like contrasted with a, a heroic fantasy world, which is that the world itself is so developed and advanced that it's like you're almost existing on the lowest rung of society and trying to act out a living. Where like the premise of like a heroic fantasy is that you're in some way distinct and unique and heroic, and so you are best positioned to actually change the state of affairs Mm. for a village or a region or a kingdom even, or the world, and we get to higher levels. And so that's, uh, you know, uh, grander in scope, but also kind of loses some of that uh, small-scale storytelling that tends to resonate with us, right? You see a movie, an action movie, where it's like, the fate of all of New York City is in the balance in this heroic character, but it probably doesn't resonate with you in the same way that a movie like Bicycle Thieves, or if you've ever seen that, mm-hmm. does. So it's a small scale. You know, Bicycle Thieves is all about just a guy who loses, his, he gets his bike stolen, and he needs his bike to do this new job that he got because the the fate of the livelihood of his family depends on it. It's a super small scope, but Mm -hmm. it's no less, uh, it's no less touching, I guess, for lack of a better word. And if anything, I would say it is more that, but because you are more likely to relate to it it personally as like a, a person, but, you know, and so they're just different sensibilities. You know, you can do grand things that are, you know, world moving and shifting and, that's just a different type of fantasy than than something that's more gritty.
0: When I saw that movie, it was called Pee-wee's Big Adventure, but I know which oh, one you're okay. talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you to rev- watch
1: If you've never seen that movie, you should watch it. <laughs> I haven't. Yeah,
0: I'm, I'm interested, though. Just like the other one. Yes. What was the one that you said there was no dialogue in it at all? The heist movie?
1: Uh, Rafifi. No, there's dialogue in the movie just for the whole duration of the heist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, I, I want to uh, see that. It's a pretty good movie
0: stretch so to wrap up the end here um dave is definitely one of the best storytellers i know and though he is a writer uh he's a journalist but he's not exactly a novelist or anything but i like to uh i gotta say he's got some chops when it comes to writing and there's some things i'd like to ask you dave uh to help coming up what makes a good heist or a run in cyberpunk
1: well i think the same things that make a good a narrative in a film or a novel, right? You need to keep the dramatic tension taught. And so you need to kind of think about what the building blocks of uh, keeping dramatic tension taught are. Um, You also need to make sure that the world in which the characters inhabit is in some way fleshed out. And what that does is allow there to be stakes to the game you know, I think this is something that's lost in a lot of modern movies, especially comedies. Comedies deserve real stakes in the same way that, like, an action movie or a drama deserve real stakes. There is a real cost to... And 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 that cost might be frivolous, right? But, like, for instance, take um, a movie like The Big Lebowski.
2: Right? Mm I mean,
1: the guys... the, The dude is just trying to get compensation for his rug being ruined (laughs) right but it's in some way like a thing that like matters to him and he gets caught up in this kind of like complicated uh political power play between all these other characters but part of all the reason you relate to that character is he's just like he's a simple guy Mm -hmm. you know he's a bum but like he's a simple guy and it's like look man like yeah i get it someone ruined my shit I would be kind of fucking mad about it. Or the movie Payback with Mel Gibson, right? Where it's like he just wants the money that is owed to him. So when crafting an adventure of any sort, you have to make sure that there are stakes to the game. There's a cost to failure. And so the players will feel more of a fire under their ass to achieve success. And if you don't have that dramatic tension, the players feel like no matter what they do, they'll be okay. Okay. Or the players feel like no matter what they do, they're just gonna die or whatever. You, you need to have like some dramatic tension, and you need to try to at every micro level communicate this to the players and have lots of decision points. A heist sort of uh, a heist is a complex web of things that need to go right. You, like you said, the laying out of the the heist requires. Everything to be planned in a certain way, to go a certain way. And so if you want to have a heist narrative go well, the more points where you can be like an A or B, a success or failure, Mm -hmm. the better. Not just like if we do this thing, then we get to this thing and we succeed. Mm -hmm. No, it's like have it be every little thing like there's an A or B. And it's a binary success or failure and the players know that they need to have like a certain amount of things that like a certain amount of successes almost like a skill challenge a certain amount of successes in order for the overall mission to be successful and there needs to be some flexibility in success and failure it's not like you do one thing wrong and failure it's like no to keep that dramatic tension on a micro scale have things start to go wrong like they do in a movie And then maybe the players have a few opportunities to recover from failure, to snatch victory from the hands of defeat. And at every micro level of the plot point, if you can keep that going while keeping some elements of the adventure um, kind of working behind the, the scenes so that the players are unaware of them, working counter to their goals, then you keep the mystery and you keep the dramatic tension. And those two things I think are the most important to a heist film is is the sense of, of mystery, that something is happening behind the scenes, somebody working at odds to them, and they're trying to foil them, and then the players are always, like, through a series of a bunch of different plot points having, like, a success or failure, and that there's a flexibility between success and failure. It's not just like, oh, you failed one role, you failed this, this test. Right? It's like, no, things are starting to go awry, and maybe you can troubleshoot and connect, and you recover, and then you're immediately on to the next plot point of a success or failure, and you keep the players on the edge of their seats, trying very hard to like ensure that every single thing along the way goes right, but even if every single thing doesn't go right along the way, they can still succeed overall. Is is a is an essential element
0: of that. Oh yeah, I, some some of the best fun is when you fuck up that one time, <clears throat> and you got to quickly think on your feet. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think one of the biggest things, and this is one that I've been trying to really get down, is the atmosphere of a cyberpunk world. Mm-hmm. What to you is like a really good cyberpunk atmosphere? Like if you're going into a game session, how do you want to? how do you want to represent your world?
1: I think it depends on like which of those three genres you're kind of striving for. Um, But for me, you want to have a sense of, um, again, that no matter what the characters do, they, they get embroiled in these dramas, but that overall, whether those things happen, the world itself goes on without them and the world itself continues on in this way. The sense of fatalism and that, like, you know, a dystopian future isn't really dystopian if one character can come along and just change the whole paradigm of things. You know, that's part of what makes it so bleak and depressing, but it doesn't mean that the characters can't find meaning in their victories and their defeats. And so to establish that, you need to... Through your flavor text and descriptions, communicate things that give the players a sense of foreboding, right? A sense of dread. So, just like we talked about last week, you know, the use of shadows and darkness as a descriptor, and the things that are in the shadows and darkness, the things that anything that obscure and make the characters feel small, tall, monolithic buildings, giant corporations with, with you know. Uh, you know, monolithic ads or whatever mm. that, that demonstrate some level of commercialism that are independent of the the people on the street. Anything that you can do that, think of it like a camera, that makes the players on the street and their general uh, sensibilities seem more like insects, creates that sense of foreboding. Uh, you know, rain, things being dirty and grimy and and, uh, you know, graffiti, things that just show the general dereliction as contrasted by these megalith um, corporate structures create this sense of smallness in the character and kind of communicate their insignificance uh, and consequently hopefully spur them to uh, what you would see is like micro choices that delineate them from these, you know, uh, pillar ideas, whether it's the government, whether it's corporations, but the whole idea that's appealing of cyberpunk is that there's these big things that have gotten too big to fail, right? Mm -hmm. Corporations or government or whatever. And so the characters delineate themselves in a way that is distinct from them. They care about results at all costs and the characters need to have moral choices to in some way distinguish their humanity because part of a dystopian future is almost always that results are what matter and you can ignore the human cost of things and so anytime you give your characters a chance to show a glimmer of humanity in some way especially if it flies in the face of the sensibilities of the system then that in some way gives them uh, a sense of accomplishment even if it's not directly to their benefit, right? They can delineate themselves as moral agents still capable of making their own decisions with individuality, which is a dystopian future usually aims to crush all individuality, homogenize thought, homogenize society. And we find this terrifying in the West because it lies in the face of democratic liberty. Mm -hmm. And so you can do that in a variety of micro ways that just kind of almost like they're trickling down and they're not affecting the overall structure but they're giving your character a sense of meaning, help some young boy or, or make someone else's life better and you can earnestly say that you have risen above the shit show of this crushing oppression and delineated yourself in a way that's meaningful and so I think that those are some of the themes that kind of play into that notion.
0: Man, you brought up some Ideas that I never even thought of, and especially when it came to like when I first tried to start playing like Shadowrun with Rob and the guys. Rob never got into it that much, but he's a big fan of the D&D. We are the heroes of the story. We are someday going to be larger than life. Where and that's just it in a cyberpunk game. It is. It's more or less that you go through and do all these deeds. And no matter what, at the end of the day, you're just another guy punching out and going home.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, to me. It kind of this is uh, this is part of what makes Rocky such a great fucking movie is the scene where he's talking about um, how to delineate himself. I don't know if you remember this scene, but he goes down to the arena where he's going to fight Apollo Creed, and the guy down there, there's these big banners of him and Apollo, and he says to the guy, "Hey, I'm actually not wearing red trunks with a white stripe. I'm wearing." white trunks with a red stripe and the guy says rocket doesn't really matter and he and he in that moment he realizes that he's just kind of a pawn in 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 apollo's plan to kind of like make himself look good
2: Mm. and he
1: goes back and he talks to adrian and he says look i can't beat apollo i know i can't beat apollo but maybe what i can do is go the distance with him Nobody has ever gone the distance with Creed. Nobody's ever gone 15 rounds with this champion. And if I can do that, then I can prove to myself that I'm not another bum off the street. I can delineate myself in some way that has importance. And so Rocky, the movie Rocky, is not about him winning the fight, right? It's all Mm -hmm. about, and part of the reason that, like, even if you don't like boxing, that movie probably strikes a chord in you is because it's about him delineating himself from being a bum so he can feel worthy of Adrian's love. And that is something that strikes a chord with people like agnostic of whether they like boxing. Cause it's not about the big win. You know, the second movie is more about the big win or whatever, mm. but it's, it's not about like him winning and beating Apollo. It's about him doing a smaller thing so that he can feel like up to the task of being with Adrian because that matters so much more to him. And then ultimately, if you're delineating the, you know, success versus like, you know, having the love of a woman that you think is that you feeling worthy of that love. And, you know, most people are probably going to be like, well, the second one is far more important, right? Because it's just more far reaching, you know, it's let it doesn't fade with time as much. And so I think the same thing is true with like a cyberpunk thing is you have, you know, this overall where, wo- yeah, maybe you're not like fighting the system or whatever, but you can do things, that distinguish and delineate you, and because the whole notion of cyberpunk is that everybody is just kind of treated like cattle, right? Mm-hmm. Like everybody is just these unwashed masses and whatever, and their their labor and everything just goes to feed the state. And so, anytime you can present the characters with a decision to define their humanity in an otherwise horribly inhumane conditions. I think it has significance and that resonates in a way beyond, we killed the big bad guy, we got the new piece of tech, we, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. It's like, that's, you know, you made the life of this little girl better. And that should, if your players have any conscience resonate with you in some way that's meaningful.
0: And you see folks, that's why he's on the show, because he's got way better ideas than I have. And he has a little (laughs) bit more, he's got more lung capacity than I do too. But
1: I don't I, I don't know the mechanics of all this shit as well as you do, or up to speed on all the news and drama, so that's <laughs> what you're here for. That's
0: what I'm here for. But that's gonna be it for this episode uh for Inside the GM studio. I am Matt. I am David. And until next week, good night.